Well, let's read that text, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 to 18. Very brief text here. The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we are nearing the end of this letter, and, and just to, to give you some sense of where we are, I think we'll have two more messages here in the book of First Thessalonians. And it's my plan to move on actually to Ruth, to a little book in the Old Testament, uh, to study that as a, as a little break, and then we'll, we'll come back to the New Testament after that. But as we consider these words here, at the end of the letter, we, we remember Paul is is concluding the letter, he's closing with a rapid-fire set of commands for what the church should be focused on. And we've already considered the the interpersonal relationships in the church with the leadership and then the people counseling each other and how we respond to people that uh, do evil to us. And But now our, our gaze is lifting off the horizontal level with one another, at the people, the person-to-person level, and now we're starting to look up, and Paul is addressing our attitude toward God and the attitudes of worship. And I've entitled the sermon today, God's Will for You, right? Because that's, it's in the text. That's just right out of the text here. This is God's will for you. And so what is God's will for you? Uh, that's a question we all ask. That's a question many Christians ask. Uh, we agonize over various questions. Uh, what, what should I do with my life? Uh, who should I marry? Where should I live? What college should I attend? Um, what job should I take next? And questions like that. And we often find ourselves agonizing over these, these questions. And we can even start to think that God is in the business of dropping these subtle hints throughout the world. And it's our job to try to, to try to pick those out, right? I don't want to miss any hint God might be giving me in my life so I don't miss his will, right? So I don't take the wrong turn and end up in the ditch somewhere in the future. But I want to ask, is that, is that actually a bis- biblical way to live? Is that actually a biblical way to make decisions? Uh, is God whispering to us about his will, about his will for our life? Is that, is that hidden in the, the clouds and dreams and visions and things like that? Many people think so. Uh, many people think so. Uh, many people, even ancient people and modern people, try different things to discern God's will in their life. What should I do? What should I do? We look at the stars, okay, astrology. Some people look at tea leaves. They try to pick out patterns in tea leaves. Uh, many people interpret their dreams. They think, I had this striking dream last night. What's God trying to say to me? Uh, animal movements. Oh, I saw this, this rare animal dart across my path. What, what does that mean? What is God trying to say to me? I once knew a man who, at a very low point in his life, he saw a tattoo, a certain tattoo, and he interpreted that as a communication from God. And he even got the same tattoo later, just to commemorate how impactful that experience was. Another lady, she, again, at a low point in her life, she looked up and saw an eagle flying overhead, and she just knew 
that God was saying, not just that she, God was with her, but this was a very specific message God was sending her through this eagle. But I want to discourage us from thinking that way, from just thinking that God is, is dropping these little subtle hints to you, that, and you need to pick them out. It's your job to find them, and you might miss something, and you might take a wrong turn. I want to discourage you from living that way. Why? Well, what God wants for you is not a secret. It's not a secret at all, right? It's actually right here in black and white in a text that's almost um, unremarkable in how simple it is and how short it is. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what is God's will for you? If it's not this whole idea of divination and trying to discover little hints in the world— but it's actually clearly revealed what, what is that will. Well, it's to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances or in everything. And so those are the attitudes of what I call soul-satisfying worship. So God's will for you is primarily that you would know and experience true soul-satisfying worship. When we think of the other way of living, oh, I'm, I need to discern God's hints in my life so I make the right decisions, God is, is almost secondary because our goal is to have a happy future. And God's role in that is to direct us. Oh, here is the right decision to make. Here is where you'll be the happiest on this path. But it, it doesn't make him the end and the goal. You see the difference? How God, in one worldview, is almost the the helper and the genie, right, who's helping you make the right decisions and be successful. When the Bible would make God the goal of life, okay, it's the goal of life to know and experience God. And I know many of us are, are learning that in this book, Knowing God, and that's a major argument of that book, is that we were ultimately meant and designed to know God in worship, in soul-satisfying worship. And so this text gives us three commands, three aspects of this worship. And the first is to rejoice always. And the original language, it's, it's in a tense that implies an ongoing action. So always be rejoicing is the command. Always be rejoicing. But how can, how can the Christian be always rejoicing? We live in, in the reality, and in reality, we live in a fallen world. Uh, we live in the midst of people that are not always rejoicing. That's very rare. How many people do you know that you think are joyful, <laughs> that you think are actually joyful? You could probably count them on one hand. Most of them, are, I'm guessing, are probably Christians. Uh, but it's really rare to meet someone, especially in this day and age, that's rejoicing. Uh, we we are pessimistic and sarcastic about the possibilities of life and about hope. Uh, the world is, by and large, very miserable. Unbelievers are characterized by misery that's brought on through the fall and through sin. They've forsaken God, so someone that's not doesn't know God, they, they've forsaken the thing that ought to make them the most joyful. And so, of course, they, they will live a life of misery. They'll live a life that's not characterized by joy. Uh, forsaking God, you develop a guilty conscience. 
So when you leave God and you, you forsake God and run the opposite way, uh, that's not without consequences. Your conscience knows the right thing. Your conscience knows there's a creator. The conscience knows that you ought to obey and worship God. And so you are confronted by your conscience. You, you can't sleep. You're tormented at different points in your life. The unbeliever, when he's successful, um, he finds himself not fully satisfied. He always wants more. So success, it just breeds that desire for more and more and more. Uh, on the other hand, when he fails, when he fails in some ambition that he has, he becomes bitter. Well, all my dreams, they didn't work out. They just crashed and burned. And now I'm just a bitter old man or a bitter old woman. Uh, and then finally, as death approaches and an unbeliever is forced to reckon with that reality of death, what about death? It's just darkness. There's just darkness there. There's no hope. There's only wishful thinking. There's only Hollywood-type wishful thinking on what, what lies beyond the grave for people. But in, contra- in contrast to that, the Scripture says that the Christian should be always rejoicing. And we have to ask, okay, why should the Christian always be rejoicing? If Paul were, were preaching this to this church and he were to elaborate on that statement, I doubt he would just leave it there. Well, he would go on to explain what's the basis? You know, what's the rational basis for the Christian's ability to rejoice in the world no matter where he finds himself? And that basis is clearly given to us by Christ. Uh, at one time, the disciples came back to Jesus. He had sent them out to, to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. So he gave them miraculous powers to do this. And that was really exciting for them. Uh, they actually went and they did all those things. They preached, they raised the dead, they healed the sick, cast out demons, and they came back. They were so excited for that. And they said, wow, Jesus, it worked. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so they were rejoicing. But what did he say? He said, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. In other words, don't, don't rejoice so much when you have success in your ministry or in your life. What did, he, what did he say? He said, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And so that's, that's the clear reason the Christian can rejoice. It's because our names are recorded in heaven. That's what Christ says. Another way of saying that is that we possess the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, right? That's what that means. Uh, the Bible says there is a book called the Book of Life uh, that could very well be literal, where there are individual specific names written in that, in that book, and all of those names are of people that will be saved, that God has chosen for, for salvation. And so, what is the implication for us? Well, if we want joy, that's the big question, isn't it? That's the big question for you. Is my name in that book of life? And if it's not, then we can't just say we'll be happy. Oh, they're there to work out. It'll all turn out right in the end. We, we just can't say that. That's really the big question. Is your name written in God's book of life? Or do you know God? Do you know his son? Like we just sang, has his blood, the blood of Christ, washed away your sin? And you now have the Holy Spirit enabling you to live a new life. 
That's the Christian joy. That's the reason the Christian can hope. But then we also have to ask the question, well, then how, how is it that Christians can become so miserable? I mean, isn't that a reality? I mean, do you wake up every day just leaping and bounding with joy? I mean, you know you should, don't you? I mean, if we're all honest with ourselves, we should say, well, if this, if this is really true, if I really believe this is, this is really true, then shouldn't, I should live like that, shouldn't I? <laughs> but how, how rare, how rare that is. Um, we seldom experience that full joy that, that's available to us, that the scripture presents to us. And so what's the diagnosis for that? How, how can the Christian cultivate joy? Well, I would argue, based on the scripture, that the joy we have is really anchored in the future. It's a joy that's anchored far in the future for us. Uh, it's not a joy, it's not this just pure emotional frenzy that we're supposed to have because the Holy Spirit is somehow uh, giving us this irrational f- joy. No, it's actually joy in a specific hope that's in the future. And that's why the scripture always exhorts us to think of the future life, to meditate on the future life. Uh, some have even reduced the Christian life to two principles. One is take up your cross and follow Christ, right? So the self-denying aspect of our present life here. But then on the other hand, that we're supposed to set our minds as much as possible on the future. Because even though there are hardships here and there's suffering here, uh, the hope and the anchor in the future is what enables us to travel through this world, right? And so the Christian, the miserable Christian, is focusing too much on the seen, right? Paul said, we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what he said, and that's how he lived, and that's how we should live, is focusing on the the future. Uh, This is a bit like a man waiting to hear about how uh, the birth of his child has gone, uh, and someone rushes in and says, your son has just been born and everything's fine. Well, there's a, this immediate joy and relief, isn't there? Even though he hasn't seen the child. Well, someone's, someone credible has come and told him what's happened. And so now, oh, I'm relieved. And I'm, I'm rejoicing even though I haven't even seen that child yet. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. Someone has told us, God is telling us about the future. And so that produces joy in the present. And so the Christian that is succumbing to, to misery and joylessness is a Christian that's, that's full of the here and now. Just everything's about the worries today, the worries this week, uh, looking at the waves and the storms of life, focusing on those more than God's providential care and his promises in the future. But I also need to say as well about this joy of the Christian that it's not something we can just attack directly. In other words, when you find yourself miserable or you want to help someone that you see is miserable, a miserable Christian, you can't just say, well, be happier. Come on, let's, let's listen to loud music and let's, eat, let's go out to eat and let's just laugh and, and that will create joy. Uh, Many churches try to do that, right? Many churches take that approach where they try to create this experience, this emotional experience, 
that's this direct attack on, attack on, your, on your heart, on your emotions. And so it's this, it's this frenzy that gets worked up, but it's artificial. And so there is some excitement in that. There is some excitement in that. And some people may be worshiping God in that, but it, it's passing. It doesn't last. Why? Because the heart is accessed through the mind. And so scripture tells us over and over again to fill our mind with the gospel and with Christ. And that knowledge in the mind will make its way into our heart and produce joy. In other words, it's like if you find your your house cold, what do you do? You don't run around your house yelling at your house to get warmer, okay? Uh, You don't yell at your house to warm itself. No, you need a furnace. You need fuel to warm the house, don't you? Uh, In the same way, you can't just force yourself to be joyful. Come on, be more joyful. Uh, Well, there's things you can do to cultivate that joy, and that's by setting your mind on the knowledge that will naturally produce joy, right, which is, which is Christ. Scripture says to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, right? We're not to be controlled. We're cons- to consider ourselves dead to this world. We're con- to consider ourselves, in comparison with our future life, in a sense, dead, because our future life is so much more glorious and everything we're doing here is in a sense an investment for the future in that future life, that we're to think of ourselves as being dead to our life here. That's what scripture teaches. And so the joyful Christian is the Christian that's setting his mind on truth, on the good news of Christ. But then also notice here that Paul's speaking to the whole church, so it's not just individual. It's not an individual command. When he says rejoice always, That's targeting the whole church, and it's actually in the plural. So in Greek, it can either be a singular command or a plural. Here, it's a plural. In other words, he's he's addressing you all. In the South, we'd say y'all always be rejoicing is what he's saying. And so we need to apply this at the church level as well. And so someone that that is coming into our church, uh, if God were to look at our church, there should be signs of visible joy. Uh, there should be visible expressions of joy in the church. And that's because the joyless church, like I just said, if we apply the same thing at the individual level to the church level, if a church is joyless and dead, that's not just, that's not by accident. That's not, uh, that didn't happen by accident. That's the result of the gospel disappearing from the church. In the church, maybe it's dead orthodoxy, and they just have this confession that's, that's this dusty confession in the back, and yeah, we believe this, and we're real proud of that confession. But there's really no life. There's really no uh, heartfelt attachment to the truths in that confession. It's just this tradition. It's just a tradition at this point, uh, a joyless church like that. And on the other hand, we can be a dead church by just having empty excitement. Like I said, having all these experiences. Uh, you know, let's, tu- let's black out the windows, turn the lights way down, get the fog machines, get the, you know, hire professional musicians and put on a show. Uh, and a lot of people do that too, um, in our area even. But again, the church that's alive and that's joyful is the church that's obsessed with the gospel. 
I once visited a church. Um, it was a really solid church. And I came away with this impression. I thought, wow, I didn't know that you could talk about Christ as much as you could in that church. I didn't know the songs, the sermons, everything people said, all the activities and ministries. It was just all the cross. It was all Christ. It was all the gospel. That's really the church we need to be, not in a, in a, um, in a fake way, but that's the heart of our church, is to be full of Christ and of the gospel. And that's our, that's our goal here is that whatever we do, it needs to be centered around Christ and the gospel. And a byproduct of that will be this joy that Paul's talking about. Rejoice always. He, he also says, pray without ceasing. So the second activity of soul-satisfying worship is prayer. And again, it's a continuous activity. It's something that's always happening. We're always rejoicing, and then we're always praying praying without ceasing. We're to approach God uh, as a child, approaching his mother or father who's hungry, who wants a cup of cold water. We're supposed to come to our Father in heaven with all of our needs, with a perfect trust that he's ready and willing to provide for us, for all those needs. Jesus said, What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give to those who ask him? That, that's the big question, isn't it? Well, you've, you've probably heard about, at least, some great dads in the world. Maybe some that aren't even Christians. They provide for their sons and their daughters, and they give them uh, what they need. And they give them good gifts, and they're generous with them. But, but why is it some of us seem to think of God as somehow he doesn't measure up to that standard, or somehow we, start, we convince ourselves, well, God is, sure, he might be like that, but he's, he's not like that to me. I can't, I don't have the right to think of him in that way, as a perfect father with a perfect benevolent disposition toward me. But scripture from beginning to end, it, it, it just screams at us to think of God as always ready to give to us and always ready to answer our prayers. It says that God gives to all generously and without reproach, meaning that no matter who you are, if you approach God with a sincere heart, he will give to you what you ask of him. If that, if that petition is in accordance with his will, right, not just for a jet, or to, for a million dollars, but if it's in accordance with his will, God will give you good things that you ask for. Jesus said we're supposed to be persistent in prayer. He said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Everyone who asks, receives. But don't you experience this? I experience this all the time, where there's this misguided thinking in my heart that somehow I can't bank on that. That's just too all-encompassing. I can't really claim that for myself. God will give me what I ask him for. 
Everyone who asks receives. Well, it seems like there's a lot of things I've prayed about that God has not given me. Well, yet, so Jesus didn't say, ask one time in a half-hearted, lame way, and boom, your prayer will be answered. No, he said, keep asking. Right? Persevere in prayer. Pray without ceasing. The Bible speaks with one voice about prayer. It says, God answers prayer. God says explicitly, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you. And his people say in the Psalms, the Lord hears when I call to him. That's a promise that we have in Scripture. But we have all these difficulties when we actually come to, come to that duty, right? To pray. That's why Paul doesn't just say pray. Remember to pray. But he says pray without ceasing. What's the implication is that you will be tempted to cease. Why will you be tempted to cease from praying? Well, the devil will whisper to you, well, sure, this Bible has so many promises here, but these aren't for you. You know, these are for real Christians. These are for Moses and David and your pastor and the good people that you know that are really living for God, that are really serious. You're not so serious, are you? Uh, Your prayers are Uh, You can't expect your prayers to be heard after all your failures and sin, right? Your prayers disqualify, your sin disqualifies you from really banking on the promises of God and praying to him. Or we may just give up too soon. We may ask for good things. We may ask for victory over some sin. We may ask for relief from some suffering or for God to save our family members. And we pray once, we pray twice, uh, we, we have a big experience, uh, an emotional experience, where we pray even more fervently, and then nothing happens. Nothing's happening. And we just say, well, I guess God doesn't answer prayer after all. Or I guess, I thought God would answer that prayer, but evidently he won't, and he doesn't answer the prayers for this specific thing. So we move on, and day by day, we just start to cross off things to pray for. Well, I guess God won't answer that one, and I guess not that one either. And so we're just left with these vague prayers. Oh, God, uh, help me to do good things today and, and just be glorified, but I'm, I don't have enough faith to really ask you for anything because <laughs> I've, just, I've just gotten discouraged. I don't think God will really answer me. But Scripture says, pray without ceasing. Why? Well, All things are possible with God. The disciples once marveled that God had answered a a prayer of Christ. And and he said, don't marvel at that. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And it's those very things that you think are impossible that should fill your prayers. So I would challenge you today to renew your prayer life, to renew your commitment to prayer. Just think about what are things that I think are absolutely impossible, absolutely impossible to happen, but are good things, things I know would glorify God. Right? What can we, we return to praying about that we consider impossible? It's those very things you think are impossible that should fill your prayers. Right? A family being reconciled. Children coming to Christ, uh, a massive revival happening in our county or in our state or in our nation. For victory over sin that we think is just hopeless. 
it's just hopeless. Tried all these things and failed, hopeless to get rid of some sin issue in my life I've been struggling with. It's those very things that we ought to be praying for. And about this whole idea of your sin disqualifying you from prayer, we have to be careful there. Sin does not disqualify you from praying. Right? Okay, your sin does not make you unable to pray. But your clinging to sin does. You see the difference? So like we read in that psalm, Psalm 24, who can ascend into the mountain of the Lord? Right? It's not everyone. It's not ev- We can't just run out to some random person and say, oh, I know you're, real suf- you're suffering in your life, but God is with you and he's helping you. Well, we just can't say that unless someone is in Christ. But sin does not disqualify you. Uh, scripture even says, God even promises his people, if they confess their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. So don't ever let sin discourage you from praying. That's probably when you need to pray most, right? If you're feeling guilty for your sin, you should run to God. Never let sin drive you away from the throne of grace, away from God. But at the same time, you need to make, make sure that that sin in your life, you have really broken with that sin at the heart level, that you've set your heart against that sin, and you're committed to destroying that sin, uh, and it may be a battle to do that. And so sin will not disqualify you from praying. We need to pray without ceasing, finally, because it may be that God is simply exercising your faith, right? The same way we exercise to, to gain stamina, to gain strength, uh, weightlifting and various things. The same thing is true at the spiritual level. Uh, God even says that trials are producing perseverance in our life. And one of those trials is simply the delay in answered prayer. God will purposefully delay answering your prayer for a good reason. And it's to exercise your faith. Jesus, remember that, told that parable in Luke 18, And he told his disciples, you should always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart. And the story he told was of a a neighbor who had a friend visiting and he was out of food. And it was a big deal in that culture. It was shameful to have no food when someone visited you. I guess we've moved on from that. But um, he he desperately went to his neighbor at midnight and said, please, I have a, a visitor who's come from a long journey, will you lend me some food? And his friend said, ah, get out of here. Don't you know it's midnight and we're all in bed and the baby's sleeping, the dog's sleeping and all this. And he kept begging his friend. The friend said, okay, fine, because you're bugging me so much. I'm going to give you some bread. I'll throw the bread out the window. Get out of here. Jesus said, well, even that guy (laughs) gave to his neighbor who, who annoyed him. So do you think God... It is less giving and gracious to that neighbor. Even that guy, for, for an innoble, it wasn't even a noble purpose that he answered that guy's request, right? It was just he was bothering him. And so do we think God is, is worse than that? <laughs> uh, God will answer our prayers. But here's the thing. Our prayers need to become more fervent as, as the answer is delayed. Okay, as faith is exercised, what happens to the muscle the more it's exercised? Well, it gets bigger, doesn't it? In the same way, prayer 
needs to expand in the face of delay, right? The, God told the Jews to march around Jericho, not once, but seven times, and on the final day, seven more times. Why did he do that? What do you think they were thinking, marching around the first day? Why, why are we even doing this? Why didn't God just do it today? Knock down the walls today. Why do we have to walk around? Well, don't you think he was exercising their faith? And he was saying, you do this, look like lunatics in front of these people, in front of this city. What are these? They're not even doing anything. They're just marching around six days. But what happened? That wall did fall. It did fall, didn't it? So we need to expand. We need to have a faith that is expanding in the face of impossible things that we are asking for. We need to be more fervent on in our prayer for these things. And I would just ask you, what's, what's one thing that you think is impossible that you've just given up on? Could be a person, some sin issue in your life, or even the state of Christianity in, in America, or even in our city here. What's something that you're just pessimistic about? You think, well, that's not going to happen. I would encourage you to renew your commitment to pray for that very thing a specific thing like that. But look third, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and finally, in everything, give thanks. So the third activity of soul-satisfying worship, the third way that we can commune with God and live a fulfilling life in communion and relationship with God is giving thanks. Notice that all these activities are anchored in God. Uh, we're rejoicing in God. Uh, we're praying to God. We're giving thanks to God. It's all activities that are occurring between us and God. The third is, in everything, give thanks. So he doesn't say give thanks all the time, but he says in everything, in some translations say in every circumstance. In every circumstance, in every situation, give thanks. Well, what, was, what were the circumstances of this church, the Church of Thessalonica? It's been a while since we considered that or mentioned, you know, the specific church here that Paul was writing to. But if we, we try to refresh our memory, we, we remember that they were suffering for the gospel in Thessalonica. Uh, they came to Christ, and it's not like here where it's just wishy-washy and we, you know, we have the Bible sort of in different spheres of of our culture, and more so in the South, of course. Uh, but there was a uh, really open hostility to the gospel, and there is that here too, in many places. But these people were ostracized from their jobs. Uh, religion was baked into everything, right? It wasn't freedom of religion. It was, you go to pay your taxes, and there's probably some religious pagan element to that. So these people were immediately ostracized from their community and their culture. And so they were not in the golden age of the church. Uh, they were suffering, and so they needed this command. But Paul would say to them, even though you're being persecuted and suffering as Christians, you should be giving thanks. And if we say in everything, well, we have to say that includes when we're young and when we're old, when we're sick, when we're healthy, when we're rich, and when we're poor. Uh, in every situation and circumstance, we give thanks. We can give thanks, and we have to. And we just think about that. Well, what should we get, 
give thanks for? Uh, we, well, we give thanks, of course, for the death of Christ and the hope of heaven, that Christ has purchased us with his blood and that we are now fully forgiven for all of our sin. We have the hope of eternal life and we are confident that we will enter heaven and live in eternity in fellowship with God. That is certainly something to give thanks for. Luther, when he discovered the gospel, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, when he finally discovered the gospel in the midst of all this darkness and all these, these rituals and all these legalistic rules in Catholicism, he said, when I finally understood the gospel, that I'm forgiven through Christ, through faith alone, the gate of heaven swung open to me and I entered in. And so we can give thanks for that, right? That we have this eternal hope in Christ and through Christ. But I would argue that we have to go further than that. So it's not enough for you to just say, well, things aren't going so well now, but I know when I die, God will carry me to heaven. The Bible would say that that, that is being too simplistic. That's being too... That's minimizing, really, the grace of God in the present. And so what we, ju- what we just talked about, what is it? Will we give thanks for the past, for Christ and his work? But in the future, we can give thanks for heaven and the hope of eternal life. But what about the present? Uh, what about today? What is happening in your life today? Are you giving thanks not only in that situation and circumstance, but for that situation? Are you giving thanks for the specific things that are happening in your life? And many of us would say, well, no. Why would I give thanks for disease? Or why would I give thanks for being in poverty? Uh, Why would I give thanks for uh, my own weaknesses, all the weaknesses I have in my life? Uh, Well, the Bible would say that every single moment In your life, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, is a gift. That God is always giving good gifts to his children. Uh, The things that are happening you today, that are happening to you today, they're not random. They're not wasted. You're not a casualty in God's plan. That God is actually meticulously involved and at work in the situations of your life. Right? Remember that great verse, Romans 8.28, says, We know, right, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Every situation in life is conspiring together for your good. Isn't that amazing that God is so wise that he can do that? He's powerful enough to do that, but he's willing and gracious to do that. That one day you will look over the, the history of your life and you will say, if I, could, if I could change my life, if I could change where I was born, the house I was born into, when I came to Christ, the sin, even my own sin that I had to fight with and struggle with, all my suffering, the day of my birth, the day of my death, the tragedies of my life, if I could change anything, I would change nothing in my life because God was secretly at work in all these ways I didn't think he was. 
I thought he was far away waiting for me in heaven. I didn't really see or understand that his hand was meticulously involved every moment of my life. Every single moment of my life. Uh, We can give thanks in all circumstances because all circumstances are good gifts from God, aren't they? Trials are never wasted. Suffering is never wasted. Suffering is always working together for our good. What's God's priority in our life? What is it? That we'd have an easy life here? (laughs) I'm sad to say it's not that. And I think we've all discovered that by now. That it's not God's plan or ultimate goal for our life to be easy and pain-free. And in some senses, pride is even a greater greater danger than we may think. And great trials may come into our life because God, he has his eye on that. And he says, I don't want my child to succumb to that sin, the sin of pride or any other sin like that in a fatal sense. And so I will bring pressure to bear in their life, but it's the pressure of a father in the life of his son. So every moment is a good gift from God. Scripture says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God is unchangeable. He's always giving the best thing to us. He's always giving the best thing to us. I wonder if you've ever, if you've ever actually thanked God for that. Or again, if your prayers have just been general. It's just, oh, thank you, God, I know you're good, and it's all going to work out, I guess, in the end, so just thank you, and you just buckle in for another day, right? Isn't that how we often think about Thanksgiving, where we think Thanksgiving, even the holiday coming up, and we go around the table like some families do, and we say, well, let's all give thanks for something. Well, thank you for my nana, and thank you for my dog, and and, and things like, it's these prayers that are sweet prayers that children pray, but too often we pray like that. But we don't go far enough in giving thanks and see that God's hand is involved in everything and every aspect of our life, constantly giving us good things, constantly working and seeking our highest good. And so I do want to ask you that question. Do you know what it is to pursue what we're talking about here, soul-satisfying worship, right? Is God the center? Is he the goal of your life? Or is he, he's over here. You run over here for his help to fix problems. But it's not actually him you're seeking. Ultimately, it's he is just the, the genie in Aladdin. He's the genie helping you do good things. Christianity, a real Christian, you would know a real Christian because he has or she has this attitude that God has now become the goal of their life, knowing God, right? And so you can now say, oh, these trials, they are devastating. They are real tragedies. But if, if this is what it takes to truly know and experience God, to truly remain in the faith, uh, to truly be faithful to God and to worship God, as I should, then I accept all these things in my life as gifts from God, and I can always be rejoicing, right? I can always be praying in faith, in faith, and we can always be giving thanks for what God is doing in our life. Nothing is random. 
Nothing in our life is wasted. All things are good gifts from God. That is what the passage says, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's important to make good decisions. So where we began, it's, it's good to make good decisions, to seek wisdom, to read the Proverbs, to just consider the options and weigh the options. But God would want you to consider far more what we've just talked about this morning. And, and if your heart is really full of these attitudes of real worship, and if you are resting content in God, you'll, be, you'll, be okay. you'll make the right decisions. Uh, you'll make spirit-filled decisions in your life. You're not going to, I mean, God is not going to let you take this wrong turn, and you're not going to end up in hell, okay? You're not going to end up on the, in the ditch. Uh, God is there with you. He's with his children. But notice it's for you in Christ Jesus. So again, it's restricted. It's restricted to those who are in Christ. Uh, and these attitudes and blessings are not universal. They're for those in Christ. And so it's worth asking yourself as well, am I, is that me? Am I in Christ? Have I really repented of my sin? Do I even, do I even know what, who Christ is? Do I even know the gospel? Do I think about that for more than a passing moment occasionally? Am I really in Christ? But once someone is in Christ, there are all these blessings that flow from that. Our Father, we thank you for, for giving us all these blessings and for giving us the greatest blessing, which is, which is you, to know you. Our souls search for contentment. They search for fulfillment in so many places. But as, as we have all discovered, they are all broken cisterns that can hold no water. Our souls are restless until they find you. And even us believers, we wrestle with this. And we are often so burdened with our, with our lives, so burdened with, our, with even our physical pains and our needs, our, our temporal needs, that all this can cloud uh, our worship and get in the way of us really knowing you and, and worshiping you with joy. And so I pray, we pray for one another uh, and for ourselves that you would enable us to live this kind of life, a life that is full of worship, that is full of knowledge of Christ. We pray uh, that we would be controlled by these great themes of worship, that we would rejoice at all times, uh, that we would pray without ceasing, even for impossible things, to happen and that we would give you thanks in all circumstances and even for all our circumstances knowing that you are you are working in our life that you are not distant from us but you are so near far nearer than we often realize thank you for, for being so kind to us uh, for being so gracious to us and now we pray that you would go with us from here to, into this week and enable us to live for your glory uh, to do those good works that you have prepared for us. And some of us, that's in very challenging circumstances. Please give us perseverance and joy and even discipline to be uh, always immersing ourselves in your word and promises.
And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.